0: Thou shalt not covet. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Envy is a capital vice. And it's a capital vice because it causes many other vices. Envy is a sorrow at another one's good. And it sees the other's good as one's own harm. And in this it differs from jealousy. Jealousy, for instance, when you hear the phrase the jealous husband, jealousy is when you possess something yourself, but you don't want someone else to possess it. Envy sees another another person's good as a diminution or a lessening of one's own good or glory. And glory, St. Thomas says, is the notoriety or something that we get or a manifestation of some excellence, some good thing that we have or someone else has. Through envy, one desires the good which is possessed by someone else. And it is for this reason that the Lord said, Thou shalt not covet. Because if a person covets, then he will suffer envy and also a number of other vices. These vices which arise from a capital vice are called daughters. And the reason they're called the daughters of a vice is because in Latin the vices are feminine in declension. And so as a result, they call them the daughters of envy, for example, or the daughters of lust, or things of this sort. And they're vices which arise when somebody suffers from envy. These daughters, I think we should reflect upon because it tells us something about human psychology and about ourselves. And we can look at these things, these daughters, to see if we are suffering from envy. There are several daughters of envy. And one of them is when one seeks to lessen another's glory. That is, you seek to take away from someone else's excellence or manifestation of someone's excellence. St. Thomas says if it's done occultly, that is, secretly behind closed doors and you tell like one or two people, it's called the vice of murmuring in which you go around saying bad things about somebody in order to take away from their reputation. If it's more manifest, it's called detraction, That is, you say something in order to take away from their their glory. The person who suffers from this kind of um, vice seeks to find fault with the other person to make themselves feel better because they do not possess the good that they see in the other individual. Then there is also what St. Thomas calls the promotion of one's adversaries. That is, one works against the person that one envies. You want to make sure that they don't get anything more than they already have, which very often when people envy, they don't think that the other one is deserving of it. Envy drives one to be friends with those whom one normally would not be friends with because of the hatred of the other person. And this brings up the next daughter, which is hatred in the sense that one hates the person that one envies. And you also hate those who keep you from obtaining the thing that you want. Joy is also a vice. When one takes joy in another one's misfortune, so the person who envies another person, when that person that they envy suffers some evil, they take joy in it, which is obviously directly contrary to charity. Envy also seeks to prevent one's neighbor from prospering because you don't want him to have anything that's good, whether you have it yourself or not. In the end the daughters of envy culminate in the worst daughter of envy which is hatred of God's providence and this applies not only to mundane goods for example when we see the guy next door has a Lexus and we were driving around in a Volkswagen we would prefer to have his Lexus and so that pertains to mundane goods or for instance when people envy because someone else has won the lottery even though they have bought several tickets and lost but we also see it in the context of spiritual goods For example, when it's clear that one particular individual is graced by God and has more virtue, or they were given particular graces to manifest God's glory in some way, and so we envy against those spiritual goods. So sometimes you'll see this in a kind of a family rivalry, in the sense that if one family is more virtuous than another, the people in the other family that aren't so virtuous will go around detracting or saying bad things about the other family. Envy tends to take all sorts of strange forms. For example, I have seen on occasion married men whose marriages don't work out very well end up envying priests who are celibate. Or they envy the priests because they have some good thing that they would like to have themselves. But this also goes both ways. Given the current scandals and the lack of virtue among the clergy, You even see priests envying married men because of the wives they may have or things of this sort. Sometimes women will envy other married women because of the spouse that they might have or spouses that they might have. And this very often causes them to go around causing no end of trouble. And this is particularly the case among married women who don't particularly like the spouse they have. They happen to see the surface goodness of another one's spouse, and so they envy them. And if the envy becomes strong enough, then they go around causing trouble for the family that's, or particularly for the woman who has this other spouse. Envy is a capital vice because it leads to many sins. And therefore, we must work very hard in order to avoid uh, this envy. Because in the end, it is a a hatred as I mentioned of God's providence and therefore there are a few things that we can work on the first is an abandonment to God's providence God's providence is such that we are only given certain goods in life then we must accept that we all must accept the fact that God has chosen to simply give some people more goods than others and this isn't because he he hates one group of people and likes others it's because of the fact that he has decided to manifest his various perfections in different ways through different people and those who suffer from envy ultimately hate God's distribution of spiritual and temporal goods. The person must have a detachment and by this the person lets go of of the goods that they might see outside of themselves and just be detached from all created goods and be attached to God alone. And if a person has perfect detachment, they will never envy. We must also have humility. Because, as I mentioned, God's providence distributes goods differently to different people. In humility, we must accept the degree of goods, both uh, spiritual and mundane, that God has chosen for us. We must, and the humble person actually joys in the little good that they might have. What little? I mean, just the fact that they receive anything from God brings them joy. We must also develop a sense of God's justice, in that sometimes it is a God punishes us by giving us lesser goods because of our own sin, although that's not always the case. God gives to us what we deserve, and if we recognize this, it will help us to recognize that God's providence is perfect. Therefore, do not militate against God's providence by committing sins because of your lack of abandonment to His providence. Rather, look at the person with perfect charity can look at the possessions of another person and see the glory in God and take delight in it alone. He doesn't have to delight in his own glory. He can delight in the glory of God as is manifest in others. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. On several occasions you have heard me talk about anger and the various aspects of anger, but now I'd like to talk a little bit about certain other aspects of anger, because it is a capital vice. Anger, as I have mentioned, is a complex passion, in which one suffers a certain sorrow because of some injury that one has incurred, and also, there is a desire for vindication. Anger conflicts the soul because there is at once sorrow at the injury, and yet there is also another other kind of inclination, that is, a desire for vindication. Anger is not only just a passion or emotion, it is also a vice. It is a vice when it is either too much, that is, you're angry, you're too angry, that is, the anger doesn't fit the thing that, it's, uh, that you're angry with, Or you don't anger enough, that is, a person who has no reaction and is a bit insensible regarding things that he should be angry about, then that also is a vice. Anger moderated by right reason is a virtuous thing, but here we mean by that that only consequent anger, that is, anger that we recognize that there is truly something to be angry about and we are angry only no more and no less to the degree that it ought. St. Thomas says there's different kinds or species of anger. In relation to the origin of anger, he says that there are what we call choleric persons. Now, choleric is this type of disposition. And those people who are choleric are those who are angry too quickly or are only for a slight cause. And so there is a certain vice of being choleric. Then there is the vice in relationship to the duration of anger. For there is anger that endures too long. And St. Thomas says this happens in two ways. One, because the cause of anger, the inflicted injury, remains too long in man's memory, that is, he keeps thinking about it. The result being that it gives rise to a lasting displeasure, wherefore he is called grievous and sullen to himself. In other words, he broods, and so brooding is a vice that arises from anger, or is a kind of anger. Then it happens on the part of the vindication, in which a man seeks with a stubborn desire to get the vindication from the people who have injured him. And this St. Thomas calls ill-temperedness, or sometimes in English we would say they are stern. These are people who do not put aside their anger until they have inflicted punishment or vindication. Then he says there are three degrees of anger. The first degree is when we have an inward conception, that is, we perceive something and it just remains purely inward, our anger. We see something that we've been injured and so we anger interiorly. The next degree is when the anger is manifested by outward signs and even breaks into its effect. And this is when people break into angry words or gestures. Then there is the sin which not only is conceived inward, but it breaks out into its effect as to inflicting harm or vindication on another, in which one actually injures the other. From anger arises various other vices. Because it's a capital vice, like all other capital vices, There, it has certain daughters, that is, other vices that arise from it. The first is with respect to the person with whom a man is angry and whom he deems unworthy of acting thus towards him. Unworthy in Latin is indignus. And so, the person who suffers from anger is the person who walks around indignant at everybody all the time. And so he suffers from the vice of indignation, in which he never considers anybody worthy of anything except himself. The next vice is on the part of the man himself. And this is insofar as he devises various means of vindication. And so he thinks about it, mulls over the different ways he can get back at people. And thus he has the vice of what St. Thomas calls the swelling of the mind. Or the tumor of the mind, as it may be also called tumor mentis in Latin. And this is when it just preoccupies and takes over our thoughts. Then there is the next one which manifest, in which a man manifests his anger in his manner of speech. And to this we refer to the vice of clamor in which one denotes disorderly and confused speech. So someone is very vociferous about things. The next vice is when a man breaks into injurious words. And if these are against God, it is called blasphemy. So one of the, one of the vices that arises from anger is blasphemy or profanity. Then there is also the one it's against one's neighbor. And this is called contumely. Contumely is when one detracts or says something false in the person's presence. That is, you say something to their face by detracting against them, by saying some true aspect of theirs that it's defective, or when one says something false, it is when lies about them. That means, therefore, that lying and detraction are also daughters of anger. Anger also gives rise to what we call the vice of quarreling by which we understand all matters of injuries inflicted on our neighbors through anger. But a quarrelsome person is also someone who is argumentative. So angry people tend to be very argumentative. They simply won't let somebody's word be the last word. They always have to get the last word in. If the anger becomes too strong, and if it starts to take over very uh, the whole person's life, then he will find that in relationship to sacred things, he will have irreverence, so that when he becomes angry, even sacred things will not be saved from his anger. Then there is the sin of impiety, in which one becomes angry when says things against one's parents or one's superiors. So if a child becomes angry, he'll talk back or speak ill of his parents. The final vice that arises from anger is hatred. And this becomes because the person suffering the injury, if he cannot get vindication, then he will brood for a long enough time and then he will begin to hate the people that caused the uh, infliction of the injury. So how do we overcome anger? Well, we've already discussed this several times, but one of the principal means is by the devotion to the Sacred Heart. Since Christ, if we ask Him to make our heart uh, like unto his since he says I am meek and humble of heart he will beget meekness to us through grace if we practice this devotion and if we work on it and so we must begin working on meekness and dispose ourselves to the meekness which Christ can grant us meekness is the virtue opposite of that of anger the next is we can work on humility because humility helps us to recognize our lowliness and so when people injure, injure us we will be less likely to take offense of it because we will recognize our place. That is, we are deserving of every type of humiliation which God chooses for our state in life. And then finally, we must work on a spirit of mortification because by working on a spirit of mortification, we are willing to suffer the injuries that other people, that other people inflict upon us. And so as a result, we must also keep in mind that we must bear patient, uh, injuries patiently. And this is, of course, a spiritual work of mercy. But that can only come through a spirit of mortification. So therefore, do not let your anger become to consume you. And if you have it, work on these things seriously. And if you work on the devotion, you work on meekness, and you work on humility in a spirit of mortification, you will find that the anger will evaporate on its own. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Gladly put up with fools. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Two weeks ago, we talked about the first deadly sin, envy and its daughters. And now it would be good to talk about one of the next deadly sins, which is pride, and what St. Thomas calls its species. Pride is an immoderate desire for excellence. It causes us to judge ourselves greater than we are, and it moves us to deny the truth, because we want to think ourselves greater than we are and we don't want to live by the truth which is to recognize how little we are this immoderate desire for excellence means that we desire something that is beyond what is suited to us or what is proper to us and given this saint thomas says there are four species of pride the first is a desire tending towards that which does not suit us so for instance if someone strives for something that is beyond his particular virtues or capabilities or his state, it is inappropriate. It is a manifestation of pride to desire these things. This means that in the end, God chose for us to have specific spiritual and temporal goods, and to desire something beyond that is the sin of pride, and is it a sin against the Holy Ghost. The next is when one boasts of that which he does not have. That is, one actually thinks that he has something greater than, than he actually ends up having. The third species is when one thinks he does have something from oneself when in point in fact he received it from another. For example, when one thinks that one's accomplishments in this life are his own, rather than ascribing them to God who gives one the grace to do these things. In this respect, St. Thomas says that the person claims a merit which is not proper to him. The third species of pride is when one overestimates one's own good. For example, someone is actually better than us, but we think that we are better than them. And with this, in this respect, St. Thomas says that this species of pride causes us to look down on others. Pride is of its very nature a mortal sin because the proud man is not subject to God, but only to himself. That is, he thinks himself above God's law, he thinks himself above everything that God has established, and therefore, in a certain sense, he thinks himself above God, knowing better than even God himself, who has established this order. So in this respect, St. Thomas says, it's a moral sin to have pride. But he says that it can be a venial sin or a venial sin. If a person fights it and he only gives into it partially, or if there's only it's the voluntariness is not full. Or if a person has the swellings of pride, which Saint Thomas says are in our appetites, our sensitive appetites, our passions, if he has this swelling but he fights it and does not give into it, then it is merely an imperfection, something which he must fight against. It is a capital vice, and it's called a capital vice because um, every other sin or many other sins become, come from it or stem out of it. In fact, every sin begins with pride because every sin has at its root a thinking that one is above God's law and does not have to be subject to it and that it is okay for us as individuals to not be subject to God's law and to violate it. Therefore, every sin and every vice is a daughter of the vice of pride. The only way to overcome pride is by working on the virtue of humility. And that means that one has to be open to being humiliated. Every saint will tell you, and no saint has attained perfection without accepting and embracing humiliation. Because in the humiliation, our judgment about ourselves is reduced to what it is in fact in congruity with reality and therefore we have a few things that we can do to obtain humility. The first is we can say the Litany of Humility which is said by or which it was composed by Cardinal Mary Duval who is up for canonization which is often found in the back of the Pieta books. If you say that regularly, God will oblige. If you ask for humility, God is very happy to oblige you and you will find humiliations at every corner. But in point in fact, usually what this is a sign of is not so much that that there's new humiliations, but that now you're becoming more sensitive. God gives you grace to become more sensitive to your overestimation of yourself, that is, to your pride. Another thing is to read the book Humility of Heart by Bergamo. Both Mary Duvall and Bergamo are up for canonization. The, The third thing we can do is make resolution daily, and throughout the course of the day, to accept the humiliations when they come our way. And perhaps this is a good Lenten resolution, since Lent is coming up, that if you want to do a profound mortification, perhaps the thing that you should do is always to accept every humiliation at every turn. It doesn't mean that you, be, you allow yourself to be walked on, but it doesn't allow you that you do allow yourself to always accept every humiliation. The last one is that every one of us must fight this thing. That is, one must always fight the pride, one must always seek humility. Because if we do not, we simply cannot save our souls. The only people in heaven are the humble, and the only people in hell are the proud. You have to make your choice. The only means to to getting into heaven is ultimately humiliation. If you don't do it in this life, you'll do it when you stand before God at your final judgment. So, the moral of the story is, if you have the humility when you stand before the final judgment, it won't be a humiliation because you just recognize, yes, that's true. And it won't hurt you because you already knew that this is what you are like. Therefore, you must choose between the two. And that means, in the end, choosing between heaven and hell. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. I put away the things of a child. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. Amen. Gluttony is a capital vice in which one has an inordinate desire for food or for eating. And St. Thomas says that there are different species of gluttony. The first is what he calls the vice of sumptuousness. And this is when one is only willing to eat costly food. For example, when someone is unwilling to eat lesser food, but one only wants to go to expensive restaurants. The next vice deals with the quality of the food. That is, when one seeks to have food that is prepared too nicely. And this is the vice of daintiness. So someone who suffers from daintiness only wants certain kinds of food prepared in certain ways. And he's unwilling to eat food broadly. This is why we have to work on um avoiding certain kinds of foods if it's going to cause us this problem. Next is regards to the sheer quantity. And this is when someone simply eats too much. And this is the normal connotation of gluttony. Often people ask, well, how do I know I've committed gluttony? Well, it's very simple. Nature lets us know. If we recognize that we are getting a bit too full, that is, if our lower nature starts to indicate a certain discomfort in the eating, that is, because we're eating too much, then we know that we're at the stage where we have to stop. Now normally what this means is that through the course of building this virtue, one knows just about when you're supposed to stop and so one doesn't eat more. But if you start feeling uncomfortable while you're eating, then you are simply eating too much. You're committing the sin of gluttony. Is this kind of sin mortal? Well Saint Thomas says it is if it makes if the whole of your life is ordered towards food, but otherwise it is normally venally sinful unless it causes some grave harm to your bodily health. The next species of gluttony is when one does not take the proper time to eat food, that is, one eats too hastily. And to this St. Thomas assigns the vice of hastiness, when one eats too quickly. The next, or the last, is when one fails to observe the due manner of eating. That is, we should eat with a proper decorum. And the opposite of this proper decorum in eating is called the vice of greediness. That is, one eats greedily. Gluttony is a capital vice. And therefore, there are certain daughters, that is, other vices which arise from it. The first daughter which arises from eating it excessively or moderately in the wrong way or, the only, the only certain kinds of food is that it tends to dull the keenness of our intellect. That is, by immoderate meat and drink, our keenness is certain, certainly dulled. And with respect to this, the first daughter of gluttony is called the dullness of sense and understanding. And what this means is that if when we eat too much, it tends to take an edge off of our intellectual clarity. Those who fast and abstain tend to find that there is a certain intellectual clarity that arises from that practice. The next vice is what St. Thomas calls indecorous joy. This is when all the other inordinate passions are directed to joy or sorrow. That is, what happens is an indecorous joy, that is what arises, is that people take delight in things in a way that is inappropriate. The next is regards, the next vice, or next capital vice, is regard to disordered words, that is, when we eat too much, we lack a certain or, um, order in us with respect to our words, and to this, when we eat too much, give, it gives rise to the vice of loquaciousness. The next is the vice of scurrility, that is, a kind of levity resulting from a lack of reason, which is unable not only to bridle speech, but also to resta- restrain outward behavior. Scurrility is the vice in which we perform actions in a way, external actions, which are unbecoming to us, or in a way that is unsuited. The next is the vice of uncleanness, and to this we may actually assign the vice of lust. St. Thomas says that the desires regarding lust and the desires regarding food have the same root, which is the concupiscible appetite. So if we give in to lust, we will tend to find it will be more difficult to fast and abstain. And likewise, if we give in to gluttony, we will find that a certain lust arises. And so those who suffer from lust should fast and abstain. And those who suffer from gluttony, they should work on chastity, which will tend to curb the concupiscible appetite and get it under control. And so we must strive for the opposite virtue, that is, fasting and absence. Abstinence is when we refrain from certain kinds of foods, and this will destroy certain species of gluttony. Fasting is when we simply cut down on the amount of food, and this will tend to curb our quantity, that is, we won't have the vice of eating too much. Now here, we must understand that dieting is not, properly speaking, a virtue. It is a virtue, a natural virtue, when it is ordered towards our physical health. If it is ordered purely towards looking better, then it's not a virtue. In the end, our fasting and our absence must be ordered towards some true good if it's to be a virtue. It becomes a supernatural virtue when we order it towards the attaining of our salvation, or when we order it towards the glory of God. And dieting in this sense can even take on a supernatural dimension, if we order it towards God. Otherwise, the dieting is not a virtue, and people should not glory in that, thinking that there's something good about themselves because they're on a diet. Only is it a manifestation of virtue if it's ordered towards a virtuous end. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. I put away the things of a child in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Sloth is a capital vice, and it affects many more people than they realize. And in order for us to determine whether we actually have sloth, it would be good for us to review the characteristics of sloth, sometimes called laziness. St. Thomas says that sloth is a sorrow at spiritual things. And sloth, with sloth, there is a certain coldness... That is, a person doesn't burn for zeal for God, or even for the good. Sloth depresses the soul. That is, those who suffer from from sloth find things difficult to do, and so as a result, there's a certain tedium that comes along with having sloth. Those who are slothful very often are always tired, they have a hard time doing anything, whereas those who have the virtue of diligence, which is the opposite of sloth, very often have all sorts of energy. Sloth is a sluggishness or a laziness of the soul neglecting the process by which one does the good, that is, one doesn't start the process of doing what's good, but one knows that is good. Sloth is principally in the irascible appetite, and so it indicates a lack of fortitude because one is unwilling to endu- engage the arduous, that is, that which is difficult. Yet sloth is a sorrow at doing the good because of the ardor involved. Our appetites don't like it when we suffer from sloth. Sorrow is the passion which arises due to the presence of an evil. And sloth sees spiritual things as evil because they are difficult. Now this sorrow is not intellectual necessarily, but it is in the passions. And you know you have sloth when you intellectually see that you should do a good thing, but the passions turn you from it. In other words, you find yourself saying to yourself interiorly, I'd rather just sit here and watch TV than pray, or something of this sort. Sloth has a concomitant weakness in the will, that is, the person suffers from a certain weakness and finds doing the good difficult. The trajectory of sloth is mediocrity. If you find that your spiritual life is mediocre, then more than likely you suffer from spiritual sloth. Sloth is a certain complacence, that is, you're pleased with, or a satisfaction with the pleasures of the body. For example, in sleeping, or just in laying around, because we do get a certain pleasure out of just laying there. There is a lack of joy in spiritual things with sloth. St. Thomas says that sloth is a mortal sin if reason consents to the horror or detestation or flight from spiritual goods, Otherwise, it is only venally sinful. And one of the effects of sloth is that we suffer from a certain inquietude of the body. And St. Thomas says this is due to the fact that we sit in one place for long periods of time. That is, we just don't move. The manifestations of sloth can be seen in those who prefer to sleep in without a sufficient reason. Or they don't go to bed at a reasonable hour. We also see people who suffer from sloth because they lack diligence at work whether they work outside the home or in. We see the manifestation of sloth in mediocrity and complacency and the lack of excellence in our lives and in what we do. That is, we also see it in people who watch too much television, who just sit around watching it, which is often connected to the sin of idleness. Then St. Thomas says there are daughters of sloth, And these are vices that arise. That is, since it's a capital vice, if you have sloth, the vice of sloth or laziness, then from this arises certain other vices. The first is the the sin of negligence, in the sense that one neglects his duties according to his state in life. That is, there's a lack of diligence. So in the case of the housewife who stays home taking care of the children, she neglects keeping the house clean or things of this sort, or the man who works, that he tends to spend too much time surfing the Internet at work rather than working. Then the next is the sin of idleness. And we see that this sin of idleness is really taking hold in our society. As I mentioned, people watch just entirely too much television. Aside from the fact that there is just raw filth on the television today, the fact of the matter is, is people will sit for hours at n- every night just sitting there clicking watching TV and clicking through the channels. It's idleness. It's a waste of your time. Now that doesn't mean that watching wholesome tele- um, programs on television is not it's, it's a good thing, it can be a good thing, and it can even be part of the virtue of eutrapelia, which is the virtue of right recreation. However, most people find that when they put TV entirely aside that they find that their faculties are less depressed and they actually have a certain vigor as a result of it. What this means is that you have to moderate how much television you watch. You also see idleness overtaking people who retire. They finish working and then they just sit in front of the TV or they sit and do nothing all day long. Retirement is not meant for idleness. Rather, retirement, that is the life of leisure, is meant to free you up to advance spiritually and intellectually. And so when you retire, you should take that as the opportunity to get to Mass more often, to engage in holy hours more often, to do those things that you wouldn't normally be able to do because you're working. The next daughter of sloth is despair. Because when a person recognizes that the spiritual goods are too difficult and you'd rather just be in your complacency, you realize that your salvation consists in pursuing those arduous spiritual goods. And so because you're not pursuing them, you start despairing that you're simply not going to reach heaven. The next vice is pusillanimity, and this is smallness of soul. It's when a person doesn't strive for great things, and its opposite virtue is magnanimity, in which one strives to to attain the greatness of soul that God had intended according to one's state in life. We also see that there's a certain sluggishness in fulfilling the precepts of the law which is connected to negligence. The next daughter of sloth is rancor, or spite. And this consists in fighting others who do actually pursue these goods. In other words, those who suffer from sloth have a certain hatred arising from the indignation of others. That is, they become indignant to others because they see others pursuing what is good, and because they're not, then they look for defects in those other people in order to find something wrong with them to make themselves feel better in their complacency. This, therefore, is connected to the next vice, which is malice. That is, the person who is slothful becomes malicious because he doesn't want people interrupting his laziness, his lounging around. And When people tell him, you know, maybe you ought to do something, they get angry and irritable. The next vice is, or it's actually a conglomeration of vices, is lust and gluttony. That is, St. Thomas says that when one gives in to the pleasures of just laying around, which comes through the vice of sloth, the connected things to that are other bodily pleasures, such as those which come from lust and gluttony. And so those who suffer from sloth, especially spiritual sloth, will often find that they struggle with things like impurity, gluttony, and things of this sort. The next vice is, is loquaciousness. Now, it is a fact that we get a certain pleasure out of talking, and those who just lay around tend to suffer from a bit of loquaciousness. You see this from time to time of the guy who, at work, he might work someplace, and you see, he's just more interested in sitting around talking with people than he is actually doing his work. And then the last one is instability or inconstancy. That is, a person might know what is good, but he doesn't do it. So how do we overcome sloth? The first is by working on charity. Through a strong charity, one burns with a great zeal for God and for spiritual goods. And so because one loves these things, one will pursue them. That is, if one has perfect charity. Then there is the contemplation of spiritual goods. That is, if one looks at spiritual goods and considers how good they are, how they perfect the soul, and how one who has them becomes perfect and becomes holy, then in that... The one will pursue that and overcome his sloth. And this is done through prayer, that is, contemplating the divine truths and those things which God gives us, that is, insofar as they are gifts from Him, but also through spiritual reading. That is, read the spiritual greats, the saints, who tell us about the spiritual goods and the magnificence in having them. The next is self-denial. And this comes principally through when you're laying there, and you'd rather just sit there, you get up. It becomes an act of the will, principally. And this also means it's connected to mortification. If you gauge in different kinds of mortification throughout the day, for instance, fasting or self-denial, when, you, when people do things against you, you offer them up, things like this, then in that way you will begin the process of self-denial and overcoming the sloth. Because why? If you embrace mortification, you begin to overcome the fear and the horror that comes from engaging in spiritual goods because of the defects of original sin, which is part and parcel of sloth. You must also cultivate the virtue of hope and make acts of hope because hope is a motivation. It's something that... It's a, A supernatural virtue which God puts in our will, which motivates us to pursue Him as an end. Charity and faith are not enough. You might know, you might know that God is your final end and that your ultimate beatitude consists in seeing God face to face through faith. And you might even love God, but you're not going to pursue Him unless you actually have the hope that you can truly attain Him. And so you should make acts of hope which will motivate you to overcome your spiritual sloth. These things are important, because in my own estimation, a vast majority of Catholics, even traditional Catholics, suffers from sloth because of one fact. They simply do not want to overcome their complacency to pursue perfection. And that is why they must strive to overcome this capital vice. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Every one of you learn how to possess his vessel in holiness and in honor. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Vain glory is a capital vice, because like many other sins, or many other capital vices, other sins and other vices arise from it. St. Thomas teaches us that glory signifies a certain clarity, which imply a certain display, wherefore the word glory properly denotes the display of something which, which is becoming or fitting in the sight of men whether it be a bodily or a spiritual good. The word glory properly denotes that somebody's good is known and approved by many or a few. That is, it's something which can be known and which we see in other people. It is not a sin to know and approve one's own good, St. Thomas says, for it is written in 1 Corinthians, Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit that is of God, that we may know the things that are given us from God. It is not a sin to be willing to approve one's own good works. Also, for it is written in Matthew, Let your light shine before men. Hence, the desire for glory does not of itself denote a sin, but the desire for empty or vain glory denotes a sin. Now, glory may be called vain in three ways. One, on the part of the thing from which one seeks, the glory, as when a man seeks glory for that which is unworthy of glory for instance, when those who do work to their house so that everyone in the neighborhood will see it and think well of them. Second, on the part of him from whom he seeks glory. For instance, some people worry more about what their complete stranger thinks rather than their own parish priest. Three, on the part of the man himself who seeks glory, for that he does not refer the desire of his own glory to a due end, such as God's honor or the spiritual welfare of his neighbor. And this is what we understand by true glory. That is, only everything that we take glory in, or everything that manifests, that we desire with respect to glory, always is referred to God, that is, to God's honor, or for the spiritual welfare of our neighbor, which then again has God as its end. That which we receive from God is not vain, but true glory. It is true that some are heartened to do works of virtue, through desire of human glory, as also through the desire for other earthly goods, and he is not truly desirous who does virtuous deeds for the sake of human glory, as St. Augustine says in The City of God. It is necessary for man's perfection that he should know himself, but not that he should be known by others. Wherefore, glory is not to be desired in itself, rather it may be desired as being useful for something, either nor that God may be glorified by man or that men may become better by reason of the good they know to be in other men, or in order that man, knowing by the testimony of others' praise the good which is in him, may strive to persevere therein, and to become better. In this sense, man, a man should protect his reputation, and that he should provide good things on the sight of God and men, but not that he should take an empty pleasure in human praise. That is, any praise that he receives he must refer to God, since God is the ultimate cause of any perfection that we have. Glory is an effect of honor and praise. Because, from the fact of that a man is praised or shown any kind of reverence, he acquires charity in the knowledge of others, and since magnanimity is about honor, it follows that also it is about glory, seeing that as a man uses honor moderately, so too does he use glory in moderation. Hence, inordinate desire of glory is directly opposed to magnanimity, that is, greatness of soul, and magnanimity is the virtue by which one only seeks the honor which is proportionate to one's state in life or one's perfections or one's abilities, no more and no less. So, for instance, a layman does not seek the honor that is due to a priest, and yet a priest seeks the honor that is due to a priest not for his own sake, but so that God may be reverenced and honored. Vainglory, St. Thomas says, is a mortal sin. If one makes the end of one's whole life work, that is, if one makes vainglory the end of one's life's work, when a man prefers the testimony of man's to God's, then it is also can be mortally sinful. Or, if man does not do some good necessary for salvation out of a human respect, uh, then it can also be mortally sinful. Otherwise, vainglory is venally sinful. St. Thomas says there are several daughters of vainglory, and like other every other capital vice, vainglory gives rise to many other sins and many other vices. The first is what we call in Latin, admiratio, or admiration, but it has a specific meaning. Sometimes it is translated as wonderment or wonder. This is when somebody uh, when they see something that is true in someone else, they, they are astonished by it. And this type of vice, that is, when someone wants to manifest something true to other people, um, that from that arises a kind of love of novelty, which men are wont to wonder at most. But if, if what a person tries to manifest is false, that is, if a person tries to show that he is very holy and pious, when in fact he is not, then it is the vice of hypocrisy. And so from, the, from, the, from vainglory arises the vice of admiration, that is where people are always try and seek to be novel to other people, or the vice of hypocrisy. Now, in consideration of all of this novelty and everything like this, think of that in light of the last 40 years of liturgical renovation. St. Thomas says that a man strives to make known his excellence by showing that he is not inferior to another, and this happens in four ways. First, as regards to his intellect or his mind, and thus we have the vice of obstinacy, by which a man is too much attached to his own opinion, being unwilling to believe one that is better or more knowledgeable than he. So a person is obstinate because they are unwilling to change their opinion when someone of greater knowledge shows them that they are wrong. Second is regards to our will, and in this respect we have the vice of discord, whereby a man is unwilling to give up his own will and agree with others when it is suitable and right. Next is regards to speech, and here we have the vice of contention, whereby a man quarrels noisily with another. People who are contrarians or argumentative are people who suffer from the vice of contention. The next is regards to deeds, and this is the vice of dis- disobedience, whereby a man refuses to carry out the legitimate command of his superiors, and so when a person has vainglory, they will be inclined to disobedience because they do not want to see themselves as subject to another. Another daughter which is related to the vice of contention is the vice of complaining. Contention is done loudly, while complaining is done somewhat quietly. And complaining arises from two things, one from vainglory, in which one does not want to do lower things because he wants honors, which lower things do not bring, even though the willingness to do lower things bestows humility, which is among the greatest of virtues. Pride also causes one to complain. Pride causes one as when one judges himself greater than he is, and therefore thinks he should not be subject to certain things. And when he is, he complains. And when he does not think he is getting what he deserves, whether this is true or not, he also complains. Complaining is a sign of pusillanimity, which is a smallness of soul in which one does not strive for greatness, in that one is unwilling to die to self, that is, one is unwilling to be mortified and to suffer, even insults and things of this sort, that one is not willing to strive for what is great, that is possession of soul. And so he takes on an easier path by complaining, rather than engaging the arduous good of dying to self. And therefore, complaining is opposed to the virtue of fortitude, and so complaining is a manifestation of weakness and cowardice in fighting oneself and controlling and disciplining oneself. So how do we avoid vainglory? The first is through humility. We must know ourselves. This comes through humility. That is, humility helps us to see ourselves as we truly are. And then when one knows one's excellence, one will see that it is not from ourselves, but from God, and therefore we will always refer these good things in us back to God. The next is to strive for the virtue of magnanimity. This is the virtue which moderates our desire for greatness based upon our capacity. And in this respect, magnanimity, the magnanimous man, is the man who strives for that greatness of soul which he is able to possess, because he sees in himself his abilities and what he should strive for, but no more, no less. We must also avoid envy, which can cause one to glory in vain things. That is, when one sees someone else possess something, we can be very often inclined to hypocrisy, to mimic, or to take to to glory in things which we see other people have, which is vain. We must also practice self-denial, which makes it easier to direct all the praise and honor that people give us to God. We must also practice mortification. This not only helps self-desire, but it also helps humility by recognizing not only our perfections, but also our imperfections. And we thereby adjust our goals regarding the virtue of magnanimity through mortification. Lastly, we can work on charity because charity moves us to direct everything about ourselves towards God, insofar as charity is a virtue in the will by which we love God and are unable for the sake of God. And so charity, which is in the will, moves all our other faculties to view everything in the light of God. And in this way, we will only take glory in the things that pertain to God, and we will always refer them back to God, and we shall not glory in any other thing. Thereby, we shall avoid vain glory. I exhort you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from carnal desires which war against the soul. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. During Lent, we covered six of the deadly sins, and so it remains to cover the last of the deadly sins, which is lust. Lust is a capital vice, which has, like all the other deadly sins, many daughters. St. Thomas defines lust as an inordinate desire for venereal pleasure. And lust pertains not only to the matters of the Sixth Commandment, but also to the Ninth Commandment. It is a mortal sin to lust after another person in one's heart. And this is important because many people today do not believe that thinking about it or looking at it is necessarily sinful. It's as long as you don't touch, they say. That's not the case. There are different kinds of thoughts, however, that kind of pop into people's minds. Sometimes the thought will just come into your mind through no fault of your own. And there's no sin in that as long as you don't give in to it. The sin begins once you recognize this is wrong, and then you give in to it and you continue it. Otherwise, there's no sin on your part. The daughters of lust, according to St. Thomas, are manifold. And he gives eight of them, but we're going to talk about even more of them. The first which St. Thomas gives is blindness of the intellect. St. Thomas says that lust draws one to excess or defect in judgment and affects one's ability to grasp the truth in general. St. Thomas always says that truth lies in the mean, by which you don't judge something to be greater than it is, nor less than it is, but as it is. But the problem with lust is, is that it tends to drag us to excess in relationship to some things, that is, in thinking that these things are good or morally good, when in fact they're not, or it drags us to defect in the sense that people say after they've engaged in actions contrary to the sixth and ninth commandment for a while, oh, they're not that bad. This is why a culture which is crazed regarding the things of the sixth and ninth commandments is doomed to destruction because it will deviate into error and no culture can subsist in falsehood or error. This is also why the liberal establishment fully committed to licentious lust is incapable of even grasping even the basic things that are true. So this type of blindness of the intellect, the first daughter of lust, destroys one's ability to grasp the truth. Not entirely, because we always will have that ability to some degree, but it tends to mitigate that ability. Then the next one is called precipitation. We're not talking about the stuff that falls from the, uh, from the air into the ground. But we're talking about what St. Thomas says is destruction of counsel. One does not know the means to attain the end when one is affected by the passions, particularly lust. And he has a hard time arriving at the right means, that is the right thing to do because his judgment is affected. Lust destroys prudence of which counsel is a part. Counsel is when you try and figure out what's the right thing to do in this situation, but if you're affected by the passion of lust, you're going to end up being dragged off into a false conclusion about what you should do. Those who suffer from lust are doomed not only to foolishness and stupid behavior, but to imprudence and to a lack of counsel. Then there is the daughter of lust called inconsideration, sometimes called thoughtlessness. This is the vice which destroys judgment of which is the best means to the end. You might be able to take counsel, but when it comes time to judge, this is a better thing to do than this, one will tend to not look at or give a proper weighing to the various means, but one will just go headlong into one one thing because of the lust which is driving him towards that. While precipitation makes it difficult to take good counsel and arrive at the various possible means to achieve an end, that is, to consider all of the various circumstances, in consideration is the vice in which the person might know the means, the various kinds, but he judges wrongly about which is the best. For example, a person who suffers from lust might know that mortification is the way to overcome this vice, but instead he chooses gluttony instead. That is, in other words, he chooses the things that, uh, instead of trying to overcome this particular vice... He ends up choosing something else. Then there is the vice of inconstancy. You might take the right counsel. You might even judge which is the best thing to do. But those who suffer from lust have a hard time keeping the course. That is, they might know the right thing to do, but they cannot keep the course because lust keeps dragging them off. So inconstancy is the vice in which you know the right thing to do, but you still command what is false. That is, you command what is evil and you have a hard time stay, you know, remaining fortitudinous. The next is what St. Thomas calls a disordered love of self. Because the person loves to satisfy his flesh, he tends to become selfish. And this is why chastity is an absolute must for those who are courting, since they have to demonstrate to each other that they are not selfish. People who are courting and then engage in acts which are contrary to the 6th and ninth Commandments demonstrate to their prospective spouse that they are not worthy of marriage. They're not worthy of the other person because they cannot refrain from things which they might want. And marriage is a constant course of always refraining from what you want. You, obviously, everyone knows when you get married, you don't get everything you want. And that's precisely why those who are chased before marriage demonstrate that they can keep the course, they can deny themselves in order to do the right thing. But those who suffer from lust end up developing this disordered self-love, which means they don't have a proper love of the other individual. It's not rightly ordered, because the only reason they're loving the other individual is to satisfy themselves. Then St. Thomas says, from lust also arises a hatred of God. And he says this because God prohibits Acts against the 6th and ninth commandments. And so people start hating God or hating the sacred or hating anything that has to do with Catholicity or anything like that because of their lust. All you have to do is look at the media to get a clear grasp of that. Then they end up suffering from what's the next vice, which is a love of the present life. When one suffers from lust, one becomes fixated on this life. Because it's only through this life that one can continue to satisfy his lustful desires. And so he tends to become fixated on this life rather than the eternal life. And this is why the health has become a fixation of our age. Not that one shouldn't take reasonable care of one's health, because one should. But very often people become fixated on remaining healthy because of the pleasures that they want to perpetuate. Then there is desperation of the future life which is the next vice, that is, one suffers from despair. Because of the lust, and because one keeps falling into it, one does not think that he will be saved because he cannot overcome it. It becomes too difficult. Those are the ones which St. Thomas mentions. But from these, we can extrapolate a few more. The first is incircumspection. Circumspection is the virtue which you've heard me talk about a number of times, in which one keeps track of one's circumstances so that you know what the right thing to do is, that you can act prudently in your current concrete circumstances. But if you're already, if your prudence is destroyed, you can't judge the circumstances properly, and so from this arises incircumspection. People get so fixated on their lust, they lose track of their circumstances, who they are, where they are, etc. And this affects their entire personality when they're pa- where their passions are concerned. Then arises this from gluttony. That is, when a person suffers from lust, they will also have a hard time remaining not temperate in relationship to food. And St. Thomas says that this is the case because the unit, the, the faculty, the concupiscible faculty which desires bodily goods, to which um, the 6th and ninth commandments pertain and also which pertains temperance regarding food, is in the same faculty. So if you let that faculty get out of control in one area, it'll be harder to rein it in in another area. So from lust arises gluttony, and vice versa. If a person has a problem with gluttony, they'll also struggle with lust. That's why mortification, fasting, and an abstinence tends to reduce lust. Also, because of the inconstancy, there will be a lack of fortitude. The person loses his courage. And all, what happens is when it becomes bad, when it gets really bad, what, he, what is considered fortitudinous, what is considered courageous, is seen by the person uh, whose lust it takes over control. These things that are fortitudinous are seen as foolish. And so from this arises a person's unwillingness to lay one's life down for the truth. He's unwilling to suffer for the truth. Then from this we see that there's a certain effeminacy. Saint Thomas Aquinas defines effeminacy as, as an unwillingness to be separated from pleasure in order to pursue what is arduous. Hence, from this effeminacy arises a mediocrity in life, not only just in the daily day living of life, but in the spiritual life as well. In Latin, the term for effeminacy is militias, which is also the same term used for the solitary sin. And so as a result, those who suffer from the solitary sin become effeminate. This is why one of the principal manifestations of a male is not licentiousness regarding the 6th and ninth commandment, but absolute control of himself in the 6th and ninth commandment. That's the mark of a true man. And because of this effeminacy in our culture, it has led to a kind of androgyny. Androgyny is a term which means that people start taking on the characteristics of both male and female. This is why you walk down the street, sometimes you see people you don't know which they are. Is it a male or is it a female? You're not really sure. But this is also why you see people starting to wear jewelry. You see men wearing jewelry, which is inappropriate. Now here we're not talking about jewelry which pertains to proper excellences, like for instance, jewelry of marriage, because marriage is an excellence. We're not talking about the manifestation of those excellences we 're talking about guys who just basically want to be look nice in a way that is proper to women, so this type of effeminacy begets a kind of androgyny connected to that means that there 's a destruction of modesty modesty is the virtue which regulates your externals both in dress and in action, so because they don 't have the prop because of this effeminacy and because of the um, their lust, they, it tends to destroy how they are supposed to act externally. When people do sins against the Sixth Commandment, there's an external manifestation in a way that's improper, which means modesty is immediately destroyed by that. That is, modesty in the supernatural sense, if you have the natural virtue of modesty, it begins to be eroded. And if you keep doing this, eventually you'll lose your modesty. Both in the sense of, uh, in the sense of people will go around looking for things that are immodest, and therefore you have a problem with the pornography, but also, they themselves begin dressing immodestly. And so they begin to reveal what is unsuitable to be revealed. Due to the self-love, pride arises. And today we call this self-esteem in the psychological circles. It is the true mark of a man, namely virtue, to look for things like beauty, and sociability. Instead, he's the mark of a true man is he starts looking for a wife, or in his wife, somebody who is virtuous, not someone who's beautiful, not someone who's sociable, except insofar as that's a manifestation of virtue, because that's what a femininity ends up be getting. A femininity looks for somebody who's nice. Now, if you're going to marry somebody because they're nice, as I've said to seminarians, every time people want you to be nice or they themselves are trying to be nice, look for the knife in your back. Why? Because if it's based on passion, which most of these niceties are, that means the minute you don't fulfill their passions, they're gonna put the knife right in your back. That's why you don't marry a wife who's nice, or a man who's nice. You marry a wife or or a husband who is, well, actually don't marry those, you marry people who aren't quite that yet, but you marry somebody who has virtue. And sometimes virtue comes a little stern. But that's because it's rightly ordered. Then there is from this, because there's a loss of media of of modesty, and also arising from lust, is what Saint Thomas calls the vice of scurrility. And this is the vice in which one is unable to control one's external actions. This is produced because of the lack of control in external actions pertaining to the six commandments. You've heard me talk about the virtue of decorum, in which one's external actions, which is a sub-virtue to modesty, in which one's actions suit time and place. Not only that they don't go into areas of the Sixth and Ninth Commandments, but in all matters that one has a proper regulated external actions. And this is the virtue of decorum. Lust destroys decorum. This is why people are becoming more and more disordered in their external behavior today. Which then brings us to the next one. So, antisocial behavior and uh, militating against the social order begins to arise. This occurs because we see that lust doesn't want any restrictions and so it doesn't want any impositions like marriage or laws or anything like that. And so, people start working against the state because they don't want the state prohibiting what they want. Therefore, they also start working against societal norms and societal customs which are designed to protect modesty, chastity, and purity. Also, because they can't control themselves, then they want to control others for two reasons. One, they want to control other people so that they can use people for their own ends, for their own lust. And second of all, they want to control people to keep them from um, prohibiting what they're going to do. So, those who cannot control themselves try and control others. It's a general principle. Then there is the last daughter of lust, which is death. The Marquis de Sade, who is one of the most disordered, wretched people that ever walked the face of this planet, wrote a book, which I'm not even going to give the title because as St. Paul says, it mentions a sin that shouldn't even be mentioned. But in there, he talks about how the finality of uncontrolled license in the areas of the Sixth and Ninth commandment ultimately leads to death, not just to self but to others. A, because one doesn't control oneself and so he engages in, ba- in behavior which is going to, could cause him to become infected with various diseases, etc, but also because he doesn't exercise proper restraint on his passions, then when people make him angry and he doesn't exercise proper control over that. He will not restrain his desire for vindication and he'll go around killing people. You can read the book Libido Dominandi by E. Michael Jones and see the direct connection, for example, between the complete licentiousness in relationship to the Sixth and Ninth Commandments and the utter breakdown in the moral order of the French Revolution where they were guillotining people right and left. It becomes a kind of bloodlust, so to speak. This is also why we see that there is a connection to abortion today. And so, we're starting to see a mass death, we're seeing genocide, we're seeing everything. We're seeing people who aren't even Christian fantasizing about wiping out whole segments of the American populace. This is the type of thing that it begets. So how do we overcome it? First, custody of the eyes and custody of the mind. You've got to get control of the senses, both external and interior, which are going to lead you into these sins. Second, you can work on a true devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Because she, who is most pure, loves to make children like herself. That is, she loves to beget the virtue of purity, so a strong devotion to her. You can also work on a strong devotion to the sacred heart, which will temper your desires. Mortification and fasting and things of this sort help. You must make resolutions of the will. So if a person is struggling with this, what you need to do is make little acts of the will, aside from that saying, I'm not going to fall into this, I'm going to fight this. And then you start to develop a habit in the will, a virtue in the will against it, so that when it does happen, you have that habit or that virtue, some strength to fall back on. You can also make acts of hope and charity to combat the desperation, and the charity will tend to beget, because of the fruits of charity, some of the fruits of charity will beget purity and chastity. You can, as a last resort, contemplate the eternal damnation, which is the result of these sins. But the last one is one can work on self exorcism. It's an important mechanism because it employs the custody of the mind. If these thoughts come into your mind, then immediately you turn and you... Because sometimes they can come from Satan, not all the time, but sometimes they do. So you immediately turn on Satan and use the words of Christ, get behind me. And by doing that, you switch your mind away from the thought which gets you away from the temptation. And if it's Satan, then he takes a beating for it. And if it's not, then it's analogous, as I've mentioned before, a vicious dog. If you see, every time you see a dog, he's, you know, barking and he's, you know, snarling, you're not going to go up there and try and pet him. Well, the same thing happens with the demons, with us. If they see that every time we do this, that that we lash lash out at them, they're not going to go near us. So work on this. Purity, modesty, chastity, all these things beget the opposite of all these daughters. They beget clarity of mind, prudence, good counsel, all of these things. So strive for purity, chastity, and modesty. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.